All right, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and following. Typically, I'll read to you the whole section that we're going to be covering, but I'll read verses chapter 6 when we get to chapter 6 before we get into that. We've already read through a couple of times in, uh, in our study, verses 16 through 25 and 26. So what we're going to do now is just jump into verse 19. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now what I want us to do real quick is, as we deal with this, put a bookmark here and go with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verses 9 through 11. Paul has just said, I warn you, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You hopefully understand that we are not saved by what we do or don't do. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's showing us the evidence, though, of whether or not we truly have the Spirit within us and whether or not those of us who have the Spirit have learned to walk in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. So I want to remind you of what he said here in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He didn't say, but you stop doing these things. He said, that's who you used to be as well. But you're now clean. How did they become clean? Through Jesus, through faith in what Jesus accomplished, God declared them righteous. They've been washed. They've been made new. So when Paul back here in Galatians 5 verses 19 is talking about the works of the flesh, he's saying, look, He's talking now about the difference between walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. Remember last week, if you have been made alive through faith in Jesus Christ, you live by the spirit. You are spiritually alive because of Jesus. Now we have to choose those of us who have the spirit of God within us. We must choose now whether or not we're going to listen to our flesh and do what it says or whether or not we're going to li uh, listen to the spirit of God and do what he says. And there he's saying, you want evidence of what the walking in the flesh looks like. Let me give you some examples. And if you look closely, he lists some things that a lot of us would say, oh, yeah, those are some bad ones. You know, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the idolatry, sorcery, which is witchcraft. And at the same time, at the end, he talks about orgies and drunkenness. But the thing that's jumped out at me is the fact that if you look at this list, you'll notice in the middle between the sexual morality and the orgies is a list of things that unfortunately in the church we've put up with. Look at what he talks about. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I mean, I don't want us to skip over that. If you remember way back, we were taking a look at the, the evidence of a, of a life that's totally dependent on God. And if you're totally dependent on God, you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that if you're dependent on God, you don't care if you've been overlooked or not chosen for something that you wanted to be chosen for. You're not out to self-promote yourself. You truly, truly depend that the God who saved you has a plan for your life and whatever it is, man can't get in the way of it. And, and you, you're able to be at peace. You're not going to be one of these ones jockeying for position. You're not going to be one of these ones making phone calls to others to get them on your side so that your side can win the vote in the church. And what was amazing to me is 20 years of being a pastor is how often this section right here was never dealt with among people that they're in sin. This is sin. When you're causing dissension and strife and oh, you, you may say, well, it's, it's for a good cause or I, I'm defending God. No. Look, look at what he says goes on in, in verses uh, uh, 25 and 26. Look at what he says. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us become uh, not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. In other words, he's saying, look, if you want to walk in the spirit, it won't manifest itself. Don't say that you're being righteous by causing division and strife and all that stuff. It won't manifest itself like that. 
And so I'm not going to go into the detail of breaking this all down. Again, we get into the danger of trying to, in the flesh, produce these things. I'm not going to talk about it that way. Folks, if any of these things are happening in your life, it's one of two things. One, you are saved, but you have been walking in the flesh and the Spirit of God is convicting you and is showing you, look, this is, this is showing that you're not trusting in me. You're not walking, keeping in step with me and he wants you to let him go. It may be that he's showing you that you don't have salvation. And only you know the answer to that. That's not for me to determine or your neighbor to determine. That's between you and God. I love the fact that years ago when my father-in-law got, got saved at a later point in life, he'd grown up in church, thought he was a Christian. He had prayed a prayer when he was young. It wasn't until he was 48 years old that the Spirit of God got a hold of him when he was on a trip to Alaska and he was alone by himself with God, that God got a hold of him and showed him that he had never truly been born again. And then, of course, when he came back and gave his life to the Lord, it shocked everybody. I remember when he walked the aisle that Wednesday night and said to the pastor, I need to be saved. The pastor's reaction was, no, you don't. And he said, no, I do. And it even made his wife for a time, my mother-in-law, start to question her salvation. And my wife questioned her. I mean, if my dad truly wasn't saved. And one of the things that he said one day during that time, which has stuck in my brain to calm everybody down when there was all that turmoil of maybe I'm not saved, maybe I'm not saved. He said, look, there is a big difference between doubting your salvation and knowing you're lost. Folks, if you're doubting your salvation, God's not speaking. If you're lost, God will show you you're lost. Okay? And because Satan loves to make us question our salvation, there's a lot of preachers that would love to jump on that and add numbers to their salvations by getting you to get rebaptized and make another decision. Please hear me. The Spirit of God will speak to those of us who are listening either here live or on the recording. The Spirit of God will show you whether or not this list is He's going to use it to show you here some evidences that you're walking in the flesh and not in my spirit. And I want you to keep in step with my spirit. Or the Spirit of God will show you from this list that you're not saved. But when you're lost, He'll make it real clear to you that you're lost. If it's just, I wonder, relax. God's a lot more clear than that. All right. Now, look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says this. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, somebody said, wait a minute, Jim. If we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, why do we still struggle with the flesh? I mean, if my flesh has been crucified... Why do I still wrestle with it? Well, Paul is not saying that our flesh is dead in the way that it has no effect on us anymore. But it is dead to us if we live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because Jesus has already defeated your flesh, and by His death and resurrection, and your faith in what He's accomplished, and you're now in Him, the flesh is dead to you if you walk in the Spirit. In, like, in the same way that death has no power over Jesus anymore, he's not going to die ever again, and temptation and sin have no power over him anymore because he's defeated it once and for all. In the same way, those of us who have been made alive by the Spirit, if we keep in step with the Spirit and listen to the Spirit of God, and as we looked at last week, allow God now to, to do it through us, not us try to do it for him, not try to be like Jesus, stop trying to imitate Christ and let Christ himself do it by faith, believing that he will. When you do that, guess what? The flesh has been crucified because of Jesus's power. So he's not saying you won't have a struggle with the flesh anymore because that would contradict what he had said in Romans chapter 7. But what he's saying to you is simply this. Because of Jesus and because of you being in Jesus, the same way in which... Do you think Jesus is tempted anymore? No. no? Do you think Jesus wrestles with whether or not he's going to sin anymore? Yeah. No, he's totally defeated it and he's got power over it. You need to now walk in that. You need to now walk in that. Now, let's look real quick, though, at the list of evidence of the Spirit in verse 22. It says, but the fruit or evidence of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, see it's capital S there, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ, he then says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So you see in the context of this, what he's saying is this. You want evidence of the fact that you're walking in the Spirit? 
it will manifest itself in love and joy and peace and patience. In other words, if you really are fully dependent on God and trusting in God and living in His power, guess what? You're going to be patient. You're going to be kind. You don't have to try to be more kind. And too often, and I, and I, when I first was a young preacher, I used to do this. I used to take this passage and say, y'all need to be more patient. You remember, I myself shared with you last time, I used to try to live out the Christian life in my own flesh. Even though I was saved and I knew that God had forgiven me of my, my sins, I now tried to be, well, Jim and over here and I were talking about this before we got started tonight. How many of us ever heard, of, have been told to give God our best? We've all heard it, haven't we? Give God your best. Give God your best. Folks, according to the scriptures, what is your best? Filthy rags. Your best is, what am I going to hand God, a pile of garbage? For years, I tried to give God my best. It's, I kept hearing that. But actually, as I've been wrestling with this, <clears throat> I want someone to show me where the Bible actually says I'm to give God my best. The Bible says that I'm to live for the glory of God and do everything for God's glory. But by the way, how does God get the glory? When I depend on him and he gets the credit because he did it, not me. He gets no glory when I have been really working hard for him, where I really gritted my teeth and grunted out some grapes. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You just have to abide in me and I in you and you will produce fruit. But for years, instead of just learning to rest by just abiding in him, trusting for his power to run through the branch, if you will, and him to produce the grapes, I was out there giving myself a hemorrhoid, if you will, trying to grunt out grapes. I know some of you are shocked by that, but it'll stick in your mind now, and you'll remember that. Just picture Jim trying to grunt out grapes, okay? This is what I want you to hear. You can't do it. So don't hear this list as, I need to be more joyful. I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. If the Spirit of God is showing you that these things aren't manifesting in your life, your, your work should not be to be more of these things. Your work should be to what? Abide, rest in him. Say, Lord, you live within me. You've given me this victory. You've given me this power. It's available to me. I want you to do it, but I must totally trust you. And when you trust him in those situations when you normally wouldn't be kind or you wouldn't be gentle, in those times that you would normally react in the flesh because your flesh rears its ugly head a few times, in those times you have to say, Lord, I can't go there. You need to do it. But I believe that you will. And so go with me real quick to Romans chapter 8. And let me remind you of a couple of passages we looked at in the last few weeks, but I want to kind of burn them into our brain in this context. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 9 through 11. Paul says, you, however, he's just been talking about those who are in the flesh, meaning they're spiritually dead. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also will, doesn't possibly might, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You will have victory over the flesh. You will have victory over temptation and over sin. You will have victory over the evidences of the flesh being in control versus the Spirit. You will produce fruit. Jesus made that promise. He said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will produce fruit. How? Don't worry. When? Not your job. Folks, it's time that we believe it. How, how did you get saved? You believe the message of salvation. You asked God to do it and you walked out believing that he would do it. Right. Jesus, I can't save myself. And crazy as it sounds, I'm just going to believe that you're going to give it to me. And today I receive you as my savior. I receive you as my Lord. I accept that you've forgiven everything I've done, everything I will do. And I'm covered now in your blood. Jesus, thank you for saving me. And you walked out of there and you told everybody I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. And you sounded crazy to those who didn't understand. But all you did was believe that what God said was true. You asked him to do it and you trusted that he had. Correct? <coughs> Folks, this is how you walk now in the spirit on a daily basis. Jesus, you said you would do this. 
I believe it's true. I can't do this. I can't be patient. I can't be kind. It's not in me, but it is because you're in me. And therefore, I believe that you'll do it. Thank you for the fact that you're going to do this now. And I'm going to forgive this person. I'm going to trust. I'm going to do whatever it is you ask me to do because I believe you're going to do it. Years ago, I've used the illustration before, years ago when that man went into that Amish village and killed all those kids. And then the Amish people responded with an unbelievable forgiveness toward this man immediately. The reaction of the world and of many Christians was, I could never do that. And I said to those people at that time, and I'll say to you then, uh, say to you now, neither could they. That wasn't anything that those Amish people were able to do in and of themselves, but Jesus did it. Jesus did it. And you have that same power within you. If Christ is in you, you are not controlled by the flesh, but by the spirit. But you have to yield to him. And that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is now living inside of you and give you victory. Either you believe it or you don't. It's just like when a preacher offers salvation to people. You either receive it or you don't. Same thing. That's all I can do. I can't help you. I can't give you a course. I can't tell you five steps to a better Christian walk and think this and do that. No, you either believe it or you don't. It's either received by faith or it's not. Now, let me take you to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says it again in a different way now. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eye, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. All right. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says, look, once I heard that you were saved, once I heard about your faith, I began praying this for you now. See, before he was probably praying that they would come to know the Father through faith in Jesus Christ and be born again passed from death to life. Now that he knew that they were saved, he changed his prayer. Now I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you would understand all that is now yours in Jesus, and that the power that rose Jesus from the dead would be made known to you that it now lives within you, and that you would understand that you got it all in Jesus Christ. You got it all in Jesus Christ. Let me take you to one other passage. Go to Romans chapter eight. This wasn't on my notes, but we, I promise we will get to chapter six. Unless there's a fire alarm. And Fred and Niggy might be the ones pulling it because they were in that room when I did it when that happened Sunday. So keep an eye on them. Romans 8. Look at what he says in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, let me stop. For years, I read that graciously give us all things as he gave me Jesus. So if he's willing to give me Jesus, he'll give me a Winnebago. You know what I'm saying? I, I read it wrong. I read it as uh, he's given me Jesus. So if he's willing to give me his son, he'll give me other stuff. It's not what the passage is saying. He's saying that when you got Jesus, you got what? You got everything. He's given you with him all things. Folks, anything you're thinking you're lacking right now. Now, listen closely to me. This is a biblical truth that some preachers have taken to the extreme of saying that means God wants you a millionaire and he'll never be sick because, you know, if you're lacking health. He's got that for you in Christ. If you're lacking, you know, riches, be careful. As you're going to see in a little bit later on, Paul said, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. I was teaching today a group of men at noon and we looked at Deuteronomy 8, where Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, where God said to the nation of Israel, I led you in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. I caused you to hunger. 
I made you go without so that I could teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes to the mouth of God. I fed you. In other words, please don't take this truth. And now you can in your flesh turn it into that means anything that I'm lacking. I can. No, no, no. God has your best interest at heart and everything you need for life and godliness. You have already with Jesus. You already have it all. Yes, ma'am. The all things is not this life. It definitely will manifest itself because definitely in life to come. I'm sorry? We're co-heirs with Christ, so it's all about the, the next life. It's not about here. Well, actually, it's partly in this life, in the fact that that same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives with us and will have victory over the mortal body. But yes, a lot of it is in the life to come. That co-heirs with Christ. Folks, I don't even think we can even fathom what all that means. You know, think of the reward that he, he's got laid up for him and he's going to share it. But I don't want you to miss out on what you have right now. Too many Christians walk around with a defeated, well, nothing good ever happens to me. I should have known that was going to break because everything always. You understand what I'm saying? Do you really understand? Is God for you? Well, I know the Bible says he is, but I wonder sometimes. And we walk around defeated. And I just want you to grasp this truth. When God gave you Jesus, everything you need is there. It's all there. Now, what is he waiting on? What is he waiting on? That if it's all there, if I've already got it, why, why don't I have it? Why aren't I? He's waiting on us. Is he waiting on us to give him our best? No. To faith. Okay. You know, I had, I had problems with uh, reading Tozer. And Tozer said everybody has enough of the scripture, uh, enough of the spirit that they want. Yes. They're, they're filled in it. But scripture also says that we have everything that we need. So I started to apply it to a uh, hard drive on a computer. You don't have, you have uh, a megabyte or a gigabyte of space left on your hard drive. Now you're already, you're speaking, is someone going to interpret for this uh, tongue speaker here? Uh, All right. <laughs> uh, but in order to in order to get the program on, you've got to you've got to compress it to fit it on, and you can only open up so much of it. And as you're going through life, and you find I don't need this anymore, and you get it out, then the program opens up more, so you get more and more of the spirit. But it's all there. It's all there. You're just allowing more and more of the spirit. And that that's exactly it. It's it's it, you got all of it when you got saved. You got all the spirit you'll ever need. Now it's a matter of learning how to access or use. And it's not you accessing. It's God. But he gives it to you when you respond in faith. But it's like you said, it's as well as we need. He's we don't call the shots and say, OK, God, I want this because of your spirit. And I want that because of your spirit. He's the one working out his plan in your life. What is he teaching you right now? What is he taking you through right now? What is he testing you in right now? What is he using to humble you right now? Everything you need to make it through what you're going through now is already there. You just need to believe it. You need to believe it and watch what he does. All right. Now, again, and you'll see this in just a second here. We don't all live the same life. He has a different plan for each of us. And let's jump to that. Let's jump to verses 25 and 26. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us all keep in step with the Spirit. Again, if you've been made alive through faith in Jesus Christ, you live by the Spirit because the Spirit of God made you alive. But now we need to keep in step with the Spirit. And then he says, watch out. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And I just kind of broke it down this way. Don't be conceited. This is verse 25 of Galatians 5. Those who truly walk in the spirit do not consider themselves better than others. All right. Listen closely, because you run across some of those people in Christian circles, don't you? They think they're better than you because they're more spiritual than you. Oh, you don't have the enlightenment that I have. Or I speak in tongues, as some would say, and maybe one day you'll get that wonderful thing that you're lacking and all this kind of stuff. Some people boast of their own hard earned righteousness. And we hopefully understand that that's foolish. But others boast of their being in the spirit. Paul says, if we keep in step with the spirit, don't be conceited. And then he says, well, let me just put it to you this way. When we compare ourselves to others, we're wrong. And we're going to see that there's different types of comparison. But if you find yourself comparing yourself with anybody else, you're wrong. All right. Then he says, don't provoke. Conceit can manifest itself not only in pride, but also in judgment. Don't try to get people to live up to your standards. As God starts working in your life, there's going to be a human temptation for you to now to try to make everybody else learn that same lesson. 
God may be working with you on a certain aspect of your life. And all of a sudden, you're not going to want to see how everybody else needs to have that same lesson. You ever done that with your kids? And you're working with one of your kids and their first reaction is, what about Bob? What about Sue? You know, uh, 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 stay here. We're working on you right now. And there's a tendency when we begin to walk in the spirit and we begin to grow in the Lord that our flesh gets a little bit involved in that sometimes. And we start trying to tell everybody else how they ought to be living. And you've heard me use this illustration before. Let's say that on Wednesdays, the Spirit of God says, I want you to fast on Wednesdays at lunchtime. I don't want you to take any lunch on Wednesdays, but take that hour and spend it in prayer and Bible study. If you obey the Lord, if He's leading you to do this, will you not experience some tremendous blessings and benefits if God asks you to do it? Amen. Of course. Your natural tendency is to say, oh, you got to start doing this. Because you're really not where you need to be unless you're doing it. If you're not where I'm. And you think that everybody else needs to be having the same experience as you're having. And that's a very natural tendency. He says, don't do that. When we, when we do start trying to tell everybody else how to live their lives, we do all sorts of damage. And this is provoking, folks. Remember, God is their Lord and judge, not you. Romans 14 deals with that whole thing. Romans 14, he says, some are going to see it this way. Some are going to see these other disputable matters uh, differently. You do hopefully understand. There, there's a quote that, that's out there. And, and, and some people try to attribute it to Augustine of Hippo. Uh, but actually, most likely, it was, it's attributed to a German philosopher, uh, theologian back in the 1600s. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. All right. But it says this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I'm going to say it again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In other words, in all things, love. We need to know what the essentials are. And we need to make sure that we are fundamental, if you will, and conservative, if you will, when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith. And they can be broken down into five or six, some people say seven things. But we're looking at things like the virgin birth. It's a necessity that you understand that he had to be born of a virgin. You take away the virgin birth and Jesus had sin passed on to him from his parents and he was no longer sinless. Because just like you and I, sin was handed down to us and we weren't born in no sin. But Jesus was because he was born of a virgin and it wasn't he didn't have human parents to give birth to him. God put him inside of Mary and he has to be virgin born. Another one is the inspiration of the scriptures. The fact that God wrote this whole book. There are some that say, well, I think parts of it he wrote, other parts. No, no, no. You have to understand to be a part of the essentials of unity in the faith and stand for it. Don't question. Don't let anybody question it. God wrote this book cover to cover, as some people like to say, from Genesis to maps. All right. But at the same time, some of you laughed because you have one of those Bibles. Uh, but now here's the deal. Another one is this. The deity of Jesus. He, he has to be God or it's not Christianity. There are those who are in the Mormon faith that say he's not really God. He's a son of God and Satan was his brother. There are those who are in the Jehovah's Witnesses that say he's an emanation from God. And they try to say, well, you're a son of God and I'm a son. No, no, no. He must be God. There should be no debate if you don't believe that he's God, you're not my brother in Christ. This is an essential and there must be unity. Another one is the fact that there's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. You're saved by faith through what Jesus did and him alone. He's the only way through faith in his atonement for your sins. And, and you could go on. And, and, and those are some of the, the, the basics of this, the Christian faith. Now, let's be honest. We may not all agree here on end times and how we think it's all going to happen. Pre-trip, post-trip, whatever. You know, if you want to know what it is, see me afterwards and I'll tell you. But, 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 you, but we don't always agree. But you know what? What does it say? In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But we have a tendency sometimes in the non-essentials to spend all our time fighting over it, don't we? Don't we fight over Calvinism and free will and predestination and all this kind of stuff? We put the armor on first, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and folks, in non-essentials, one man's going to see one day more sacred than another. Another one's going to see every day alike. Some are going to think eating vegetables is the only way to go. Others are going to think eating meat's okay. Each must be fully convinced in his own mind. Whatever you believe, Romans 14, verse 22, whatever you believe about these things, keep between you and God. Romans chapter 14, verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands and falls, and I love this, and the Lord will make him stand. Amen. And what was all things? I'm sorry? He said liberty and all In all things, charity. 
No matter what you do, do it in love. But and, there is a responsibility to know your scripture. And that's right. And so here's the deal, though. Well, let me give you a good example of what I'm talking about. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Here's a great way for how we are to know your scripture and to share it. Philippians chapter 3. Look what Paul says in verse 15. He's just gone through the, the teaching on straining toward the goal and I want to know Christ more. And then he says this in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, it ain't my job to convince you. Paul said, here's what I believe the Bible says. There's nothing wrong with sharing people what you think the scripture says. You don't go to the extreme of trying to prove it and win the argument. See, when I was young and God's blessed me with an incredible memory, I can quote scripture more than probably anybody that I know. But unfortunately, my flesh would get fired up and I could win any argument in my mind because I could you could quote two scriptures and I'll quote 15. And I would try to beat them down with my Bible knowledge and my, the fact that I knew more and that I could quote more and. I would try to, and you know what? All that was was our flesh on display. Share, you've got to know what the Bible says. And share it in love. But let the eye-opening come from God. He don't need you. He doesn't need you. Hey, stand firm on the essentials. Don't you dare back down on the essentials. But when it comes to the other stuff, share what you know and leave it, leave it to God. All right. Then he says back here in Galatians 5, he says, don't envy. You know, we already talked about not being conceited. But he, many don't see themselves as better than others. They see themselves as inferior. By the way, this too is a wrong attitude. Wishing you had what others have is an evidence of your lack of trust in God. His plan for your life, though different from others, is good, folks. And you've got to understand, he's, he's not expecting the same things of you that he is of other people. Remember, we looked at Peter and John, and what if I want John to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? Yeah, I'm telling you how you're going to die, and it's not going to be a lot of fun. But if I want him to remain alive until I return, that's none of your business. You live your life that I have for you. You follow me. And folks, don't fall into that trap of envying each other either. Like, man, I wish I had that marriage, and I wish I had that house, and I wish I had whatever. You know, it may be really nice that Jerry and Debbie have a new house, but they keep driving over here thinking that they still live here. But that's an... an <laughs> You'll have to ask us about that later. But uh, so what good's having a new house if you don't remember you have it? So uh, but don't envy other people. Do you really believe that God loves you and that God's for you and that God has a plan for your life that is good? Then live that life. Oh, it's so freeing. When I stopped worrying about what everybody else said I ought to be doing and what the personnel committee said I ought to be doing and what the search committee said I ought to be doing. And I just started doing what God said I ought to be doing. I'm telling you, that's a lot of fun. I want you all to feel that free. Just live the life God has for you, not what every other Christian says you ought to be doing. And isn't that what had happened in the church in Galatia? These Judaizers had come in and said, I know Paul said you get, this is how you're saved, but here's also a list of rules. Here's the manual. Mm -mm. What is it God's telling you? And you need to know what it is because you will be held accountable by God for what he's shown you. You can't say, I didn't know, because the Spirit of God doesn't stutter, and He'll make real clear to you what He has for you to do. Uh, you can't say, I didn't know. Just live that life, and it's a lot more fun. And I'm going to wrap up Galatians 5 with Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul had learned to walk in the Spirit. And here's one of the most succinct descriptions of walking in the Spirit. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul says to the Philippian church, because they had sent a love gift of finances for him, and if we get that far in Galatians 6, we'll deal with some of that tonight. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
He says, look, thank you for that love gift. But I'm not writing this because I'm in need and I want you to send money. I'm not mentioning money because I want you to guys to send me more money. Listen to me. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. It's all him. I, I, I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to have plenty. The secret of being content is everything I need comes from Jesus. I'm going to be all right. And when we get to that point, guess what? You're walking in the spirit. Oh, I can promise you something's going to happen tomorrow that's going to try to pull you out of that walking in the spirit. And you might panic and you might worry and you have to be reminded. And the Lord says, come on back. Come on back. Trust me. Listen to what I say. And then you put your faith back in him and you watch him walk it all out. I've learned to seek it. You know how, as I grew up, we love to take certain verses and pull them out of context. I had a, a poster when I was a young kid that had Philippians 4.13 on it. Had a picture of a guy jumping over a high bar, the high jump. He was doing the Fosbury flop, you know, where you jump and jump over backwards. And it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I thought, that's cool. I'd like to dunk a basketball. I can do all things through Christ. Who... That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that you can do anything you want to do. Through, no, 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 no. It's saying that whatever you need, you got it. And he'll walk you through it. And if you really believe that, it's one thing to know it and pass the written test. If you really believe that, you'll walk in peace. And you'll be one of those people that people ask you to give reason for the hope that lies within you. Galatians chapter 6, <laughs> verses 1 through 5. That's going to set the alarm. <laughs> Galatians chapter five, verse, uh, chapter six, verses one through five. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. There's a lot here. Keep in mind what we just left off. Remember, context is king. Context, context, context. Paul, after just warning of the wrong types of comparisons, clarifies that he's not saying that we're not to point out sin and to make judgments about sin. See, it's really easy to go into, well, I'm not to compare myself with anybody else. I'm just going to live my own life. And I'm not going to, you know, they can do whatever they want. No, no, no. Paul says, don't carry it to that extreme. But listen, he says, if you see your brother caught in a fault, in a sin, who are the ones who are supposed to deal with it? According to this passage, those who are the spiritually mature. He's not saying this is open to everybody. But the spiritually mature are the ones who are to deal with it. So I'm going to give you an example from this passage. We're going to just pull it out of these verses, what the spiritually mature judgments look like. Spiritually mature dealing with sin, what it looks like is this. First of all, they do it gently. In John chapter 8, we're not going to take the time to turn there in verses 1 through 11. Remember the Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery? And he says, those of you without sin, throw the first stone. Of course, there was someone there who could. It was Jesus. He was without sin. But they all went away. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. He said, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. He said, neither do I condemn you. What did he say next? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He dealt with her sin, but he did it in a way that was gentle and loving and not condemning. He pointed out her sin, but he didn't beat her down because of it. He didn't sit and talk to her about what kind of a woman are you? What about your kids? What about your... He didn't even deal with any of that kind of stuff. He just said, I'm not condemning you either. Well, why don't you go, you know, when, we, when we get a fresh start here and stop this. If you're going to be dealing with someone's sin, if God's going to use you as someone spiritually mature, someone who's walking in the spirit to deal with someone who's in sin, you're going to do it gently, not condemning, not judgmentally. Second thing we see also in verse one, these are the people who do it carefully so that they won't fall into sin in the same process. Look at what it says. You should restore, if anybody's caught, caught in a sin or a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore in the spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too will be tempted. Yet be real careful that you don't kind of fall into sin in, your pro, in the process. And you say, well, how could I fall into sin? Well, you're going to see that in a couple, a couple verses down the road. And so we'll just hold that for now. Third way is these are the ones who do it intimately. They get involved in helping the person in sin out of their sin. They bear each other's burdens and they don't judge from a distance. It's one thing for me to point out Duke's sin and then move on. 
It's another thing to come alongside and say, how can I help you move forward from here? Do you understand? Look what he says in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you're really going to be this spiritually mature person that's going to deal with this person's sin, you're not going to come and say that sin, and I hope you get that fixed, and then move on. You're going to actually get involved and say, how can I help you? Are you struggling when you're alone? I tell you what, I'm going to come over to your house when, uh, when you're alone, and we're going to hang out, or we'll go chase a golf ball. Or we'll, I'm, I'm going to get involved in your life and help you in this time of learning how to walk in the Spirit and learning how to rest on the, run the Spirit within you. You're going to get involved in their life. You're not going to judge from a distance. You know, Jim, that becomes so um, vitally important as we move into the days that are ahead because the agenda out there with the marketing of evil that has made things so acceptable. You know, we say you hate the sin, you love the sinner. It's going to be the individual personal involvement in love to help pull people out of lifestyle, whatever the sin may be, because it, it is being made more and more difficult for organizations to help, to be able to help. Yeah. They're going to make it illegal. They're going to make it hate speech. They're going to make it anything yep. so that they're not having, when I can desensitize or anesthetize the um, conviction of sin in somebody's life, that's why it's going to have to be one-on-one. -on -one. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, as every kid was, there are times your parents said, you got to clean your room. And I'll be honest with you, I look back in those years, and I had a messy room. And I also shared a room with three other brothers. It was a 10 by 10 bedroom. It was only 10 foot wide, 10 foot deep. And there were four boys living in it, which meant there was a bunk bed and a double bed. I actually shared a bed with one of my brothers until I was 16 years old. And so you got four boys living in a little room and then you got two dressers. There's hardly any floor space. And whatever floor space there was, I couldn't even tell you if we had wood floors or carpet. I don't remember. But I could tell you there was a lot of stuff on the floor. And when parents would say, it's time to clean your room, that was the most overwhelming thought you could have ever, you could have asked me to paint the house and I would have thought I would have had an easier job than cleaning that room. And when our kids were growing, we would say, clean your room. And I watched their faces, and it reminded me of when I was a kid. They would go, what? That'll take forever. And I started, and my kids will tell you, I started doing something when they were little, and I even did it a couple weeks ago with AJ, who's 14. I said, dude, this room needs to be clean. I'll tell you what, get going. And then once they started, I came in and helped, came alongside, and we busted it out, didn't we? Not only did we do it, we remodeled, we got it all fixed up. It was pretty cool. I mean, we, we did it. I mean, we're talking a total clean. Emptying the closet out, reorganizing, getting rid of clothes that don't fit anymore. And it went fast. Why? Because God has taught me as a parent to learn how to model Christ. God doesn't say, go get that fixed. We have the counselor, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to help us. Folks, if you're going to be modeling Christ, if you're going to allow Christ to live through you as you help someone in their sin, you're going to come alongside of them in that and say, let's do this together. Second Corinthians chapter one says we give others comfort with the comfort we have received. Another way that you're going to show that you're spiritually mature as you deal with someone's sin is that you're going to do it humbly. They don't judge from a position of superiority. See it again in verse three. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, <laughs> he deceives himself. The person that's coming to you to do this in love is not going to come and say, well, I'm better than you. Aren't you glad you have me? They're probably going to say, man, I've been there, done that too. And you're probably not even half as bad as I was. But here's something God showed me. Let's, let's, let's go to work. Fifth thing we see is in verse four, these do it introspectively. And this goes back to that examining yourself. They, they examine their motives before they point out others' sins. Look at verse four. He says, but each, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. What he's saying is this. He says, some people are going to, well, they're going to be pointing out other people's sins to make themselves feel better. Actually, he says, no, examine your own motives. Am I doing this to make myself feel better? When the Pharisee said, Lord, I'm thank you that I'm not like the guy next to me. The ones who are spiritually mature are not going to be helping the people in their sin because they feel like they're better than that person. 
And you need to examine your motives for why you're doing this. Why am I pointing this out? You husbands and wives that get into disagreements and one spouse might point out a flaw of another and the automatic reaction of the other spouse is to do what? Well, you do. Exactly. Turn it around and point out what the other person has done or does. Why are you doing that? Are you doing that to help them in that area? Or are you doing that to make yourself feel better, to push them down and raise yourself up? We have a tendency, instead of dealing with the things that God says to deal with, make ourselves feel better by looking at people around us and trying to pull them down to our level. No, you want them to look at themselves again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's that? Adam tried it with God. Isn't that interesting how God, Adam blamed God for his sin? And right after Adam, God said it was good that not Adam is not, he saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. And, and he put a desire within Adam. Remember, he had all the animals come by and he named them. And what he was doing was putting it, there was no helper found suitable for him. Of course, God already had mine, Eve. But he was putting that desire within Adam for what God was going to bless him with. And then when he provides Eve, Adam says, hubba hubba, now we're talking, right? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this is, this is good. And then the moment he sins, what does he say? This woman you gave me. In other words, I wouldn't have had this problem if you hadn't have brought her. Everything was good till she showed up. Isn't that amazing? You need to be real careful. We haven't learned. No, we haven't. The fifth thing, uh, or sixth thing we see about judging um, spiritually, you see it in verse 5. These do it understanding God's individual relationship with each of his children. This is important. Listen to what he says here in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says we're to bear one another's burdens, but each one are going to bear their own load. We are to help each other, yet keep in mind that each one of us is going to have to stand before God our own self. And there's something here that's important. If you're spiritually mature, you will understand that the way that God worked in our life might not be the exact same way he works in somebody else's. And we just assume that. Job's friends did not understand this. They gave a blanket theology for Job's problems. Now, again, look closely. I challenge you to show me anywhere in anything that Job's friends said that wasn't biblically, individually true about God. Everything they said about God in and of itself was true. They did not lie when they made their judgments about who God was and how God dealt with sin. But then God said this when he met up with them. He said, you guys didn't say what was right about me. What he's saying is this. You know what? Everything you said about me was right, but it didn't apply in Job's situation. All those things are true in how I deal with sin and why I deal with sin. But in Job's situation, that wasn't what I was doing. We have to be real careful that we don't just apply a blanket theology to deal with people's sins. How about we try to find out with the one who's struggling with homosexuality, how we can come alongside with God's plan to line them up with what he wants to do instead of just saying homosexuality is a sin. Do you understand? Yes, the Bible's been real clear. We've seen this already tonight. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fall prey to those who say God says it's okay. No, 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 it's still sin. But instead of just putting a blanket theology on you're a sinner, how about we come alongside and say, how can we help you? And how is specifically God trying to get you to understand this truth? That's going to take some effort. It's going to take us being willing to come alongside. Yes, ma'am. Um, I think we all probably know But at the same time, God calls us to his standard, be holy, for I am holy. Mm -hmm. And can you help reconcile how to... Let's, um, let's go to that passage. Go to Matthew chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 7. Jim, doesn't it, say, it doesn't say not to judge. It says do not judge unless you want to be judged by that same standard well, from God. There you go. Go take a look at it. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. A lot of people do try to say, don't judge, but actually they're quoting it out of context when they say, don't judge. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In the full context here, as we see it aligned with Galatians 6, he's not saying that we're not to make judgments about sin, but we're to do it in such a way that we have already examined our motives. We've already understood, hey, you know, I struggle with sin too. I can't count all these things we've just listed. I don't come at it from a position of superiority. I'm not just going to make a judgment and move on. I want to come and get intimately involved with you. He's not saying don't make the judgment. He's saying, first of all, understand in the way in which you judge, it's going to be held to you the same standards. Get your life lined up and then you can come and help. It's kind of hard to get, quite get that because the first three words are do not judge. Yep. But he's also talking to people who already have a log in their eye and they're not in a position to judge. But again, as we to interpret a passage of Scripture, if you leave it by itself without using the whole of Scripture, you're going to end up with that interpretation. But if you compare it to the whole of Scripture, remember the Bible says we're to make judgments about sin. Paul says in Corinthians that, you know, if you see a brother who claims to be a follower of Christ and he's walking in sin, what are we to do? We're not to even eat with that person. Bible says we're to break fellowship. We're to so he is. The Bible does teach that we're to make judgments about sin. Well, it tells us to be prudent and just, we're supposed to have a discriminating and a discerning spirit. Yep. If if discernment didn't mean anything, exactly. Exactly. Goes. So you you if you were to take this passage by itself, it would make you automatically feel like I'm not to make any judgments at all. But as you look at the whole of Scripture, and if you look closely at what's being said here, there are times that you're to make judgments, but it shouldn't be the first thing we do. And that's why you who are spiritual make this judgment. And so, well, <laughs> I love how Paul puts it in Romans 14. He says, look, who are you to judge someone else's servant to his own master and all this kind of stuff? And then he says, just make it your ambition to live your life in such a way you don't cause anybody else to stumble. In other words, instead of making yourself as a judge on how everybody else ought to be living their lives, why don't you live your life so that you don't mess anybody else up? And then as they see the purity in your life, they may even come alongside of you and say, hey, could you help me with the things that I'm dealing with? You'll never know how God's going to bring it all out. But I think time wise, we have time for verse six. We got seven minutes and I think I can hit it in verse six. It's that way we can come back when we get back together next week and move on. So let's go Galatians chapter six. Um, look at verses, uh, just verse six. This is one of those passages that we preachers always are afraid to deal with because it seems self-serving. And so I kind of prayerfully looked at this and I've decided I'm gonna deal with verse six in the same way in which Paul dealt with this issue. All right, verse six says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. By the way, this is dealing also more than just financially, but I'm gonna just deal with the financial aspect of this tonight. All right, let me read it to you again. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul wrestled with this, being a teacher who also needed to teach the whole counsel of God. It's hard sometimes to teach the whole counsel of God when you're like me and you get your living, if you will. God provides for my living, but he uses people like y'all to financially support and to give gifts financially to meet our needs so that I can do all that God has for me to do and my family to eat, my house payment and all that jazz. But it's hard sometimes because there is a tendency in the human mind to say, well, the only reason you're doing that is because you want... I'm going to show you what Paul said, and that will be what I say. All right. Go with me to Philippians chapter four, verses 15 through 20. And the good news is God knows my heart. And even if you still think I'm in it for the money, it, <laughs> this too God will show you if you feel differently. In Philippians chapter four, look at verses 15 through 20. He says, then you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent 
a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Real quickly, he's saying thank you for the love gift financially that you sent with Epaphroditus. It was awesome. I'm fully supplied. Now, I'm mentioning this not because I want you to give more, but because I want you to understand that God's going to give you credit for your faith and your obedience to do what it is he's gifted you to do. As much as God's going to reward me for my preaching and my teaching, he's going to reward you if your, your gift your ministry is giving. And at the same time, when he said, my God will supply all your needs. Listen, in context, who has he made that promise to? Someone who has already given what the, God told them. Exactly. The ones who had been generous to support ministry. He wasn't, that's, you know, yes, God will supply all our needs, but he may withhold if we're holding back. But look, let me show you three other passages real quick. Paul taught that this was how God designed gospel ministers to be taken care of, but he made sure that no one could accuse him of being in the ministry for the money. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, then 2 Corinthians 11, and 1 Thessalonians 2, and we'll read these quickly, and we'll leave it at that. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 18. This is Paul's teaching on those who and how they're supported who are in the ministry. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. See what he's saying is, is look, God's all along said that those who do the ministry of preaching and teaching should get their money from people giving to support them so they can do it. He says, but you know what? A lot of times I don't even take advantage of that. And you've heard me say, I never, ever, ever will charge anybody to hear me preach and teach. When I go to churches, there are those in the traveling ministry that have a set minimum that they will come for. I don't do that. I'll go for free if I have to, because God is my provision. God is the one who's going to pay my bills. If nobody gives to the ministry, I'm still going to eat because God will take care of me. And at the same way, I never, ever, 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 ever want to charge anybody to hear the God, word of God. That's why we give away our CDs. That's why we give away the DVDs. I want to never say to someone, you can't hear God's word unless you have enough money. I want to be able to boast about the fact that I'm doing this free of charge so you can hear it. At the same time, I would be wrong not to let you know that how God has designed it is for some people to supply the needs. And we'll just leave it at that. And now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verses 7 through 9. Paul says he's still dealing with the fact that people were claiming that he was in it for the money. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. See that? He said to the Corinthian church, look, you're accusing me of all this stuff. I never asked you for anything. All the, th the stuff I lived off of, those are the Macedonian churches that were supplying for me. And you're still going to accuse me of being in it for the money? And then the last passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5.
Paul says, for our appeal, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And folks, that is my prayer, is that in the ministry that God has me in, and I've been in now for seven plus years, that my whole purpose for doing what I do is just so that I can do what God's called me to do. I totally trust Him, and I thank everybody, not just those who are in the room, but those who are listening that have sent and supplied. God has supplied, and I can look you in the eye and say, God, just a preacher is blessed financially. Now, my flesh says, don't tell them that. <laughs> but you know what? It's a good way for me to show that I trust that God's going to take care of us. Thank you for your support. It is how God has designed it. And I hope that you reap the benefits of what you do and what I do. And just live the life God has for you and watch how God puts it all together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I can rest in you and I don't have to worry about these things. Of course, I have in the past and you have used it as a lesson for me to not only humble me, but to test me and to show me what was in my heart. And then to teach me that I really wasn't depending on you. Thank you that I can say that in that area I'm getting better and better as your spirit is allowed to take full root in my heart and through faith. Lord, thank you for the fact that uh, there's a group of folks that are not only here in this room, but all around who you use to support what we do. And they're going to be rewarded for it one day. And Lord, like Paul mentions it so that they can get credit for their account, I pray that as well. Lord, thank you again for the fact that you're teaching us what it means to walk in you and to rest in your spirit. Lord, I pray that we'd walk out of these times of study excited about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be in you. Lord, may we stop trying to give you our best and trust by faith in your best. We pray this in your name. Amen.